This is the Monday, August 27, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine whirls us back to the pivotal event of America's 19th century, when 13 southern states seceded from the Union, setting the stage for the nation's bloodiest conflict. But our view of the Civil War won't come from a soldier, sailor, or aide within the Lincoln White House. He's not a Lee... Grant, Lincoln, Stonewall Jackson, or even a Mary Chestnut. Instead, we'll sit beside the sickbed of 12-year-old Leroy Wiley Gresham, known as Loy to his family, and watch him grow to the age of 17 as the war tears the nation apart. This young voice of the Old South was born in 1847 to an affluent slaveholding family in Macon, Georgia and rendered an invalid after a mysterious accident, even as he remained ignorant of the fatal disease marching him towards an early grave. Both of those things, the source of the accident and the cause of his ultimate death, required some historical research work that we're going to talk about today. We enter this witty and perceptive young man's life in The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860 to 1865. It's brought to readers for the first time, the very first time in 150 years, think about it, by Savis Beatty LLC, publisher of Historical Titles of Distinction. Fitting for a unique perspective, we'll get a unique voice, one that brought this diary to print after it had languished for so long. Our guest is Theodore P. Savis, attorney, author, publishing consultant, agent, and the managing director of Savas Beatty. He acquired the diaries and did what I'd have thought impossible. In 2018, he added a fresh new voice to our understanding of the Civil War. So if you care about the Southern experience on the home front, or are interested in the slave experience, the environmental impact of the war, medicine at the time of the Civil War, you'll get all of those perspectives right here in the war outside my window. And I almost feel sorry for the generations who came before us that didn't have the opportunity to explore it because it was left unpublished for so long. Visit SavasBeatty.com for more of their titles. That's S-A-V-A-S-B-E-A-T-I-E. And you can find Janet Kroon's reflections at TheWarOutsideMyWindow.blogspot.com or Facebook.com slash Leroy Wiley Gresham. Okay. Now that we've quietly entered young Leroy's sick room and found him in a talkative mood, 
let's pull back the curtains and witness the war outside my window. I'm joined on the line by Theodore P. Savis. He's partner and managing editor of Savis Beatty LLC, publishers of The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860-1865. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. It's my pleasure, Dean. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is going to be a unique perspective and one I'm really excited to get. We think of the authors and the person who does the words. Obviously, here we can't interview young Leroy. And even to interview the person that edits it, Janet E. Croon, we can do that. But to interview the publisher, somebody who was so uniquely and deeply involved in bringing this book to print is a great opportunity. And I think people will enjoy listening to it. We all have had that moment where we think, gosh, I I wish that there was a book on this. I wish I could learn more about this particular person in history. You have that eureka moment. And I picture you as first being a, a person who loves history, first just being a reader. You get that email containing a 2012 Washington Post story headlined, Invalid Boy's Diary, Focus of Library of Congress Civil War Exhibit. So you get that excitement and then you realize, wait a minute, I can actually do something about this because I publish (laughs) books. The thing when you tell that story that's so striking and so scary is you write, you nearly skipped past that email because, hey, you you get a million emails, right? And you say, what a mistake that would have been. We have heard from authors, we've heard from illustrators describing their paths to refining historical gold like Leroy's diary. For instance, your own Gene Barr, who brought us a Civil War captain and his lady, talks about how he got all of those letters and and managed to pare those down and how those came to him and it was like finding gold. So how did you go about pursuing this diary from a publisher's point of view once you make that life-changing and history-changing move to click that link to the Washington Post? Well, yeah. Thanks again for having me on, Dean. Yeah, when Jan sent me this email, it's pretty remarkable because I didn't know her. I only knew of her sort of through social media and she was one of our customers, but she sends me this link and says, Ted, I really think you'd like this article. You should take a look. So I looked at it and I I thought, oh, you know, I don't have time to look at this now. But for some reason I clicked and I did. And up comes this Washington Post article that was absolutely riveting and fascinating about this 155,000 word seven journal diary. Like you were saying, I get a lot of emails. Everybody who runs a business knows what that's like. You just get swamped with things and, and a lot of things that you wish you could get to, you just don't. So I don't know why I clicked on this particular one. I didn't even know Jan, really. And as I started reading about this diary and this young man and his family, it just kept striking me that it was utterly unique. I had never heard of anything quite like this. And I've been studying the Civil War since, you know, I was about 15 years old and I'm almost 60 now. So it's, uh, it was a pretty rare sort of thing. And really satisfying to find something. It's as if you're eating the same thing all the time. I don't tend to get tired of foods, but every now and then I like to have something different. Who doesn't? Have some variety. And you go about editing down these letters, and then you you pull out so many things. I mean, as I'm reading The War Outside My Window, I'm saying, this is a young man who I could have spoken to, I feel, when I was his age or, or now. And people wrote well back then. We're used to that. But he writes particularly well. You go about fast-tracking it to publication you write, which I love. It's as if 
150 years, but it's brand new to you and you want to mm-hmm. get it out there. You want people to get it as soon as possible. It's not, ah, well, it's waited 150 years. Let's leave it in a drawer for another another 10 or something. You go right after it. Well, what was remarkable about this is the journals had been sitting at the Library of Congress for probably about 30 or 34 years and, and it had been donated up uh, through the family line, I think, on his sister's side. There were no restrictions to publication. The article mentioned that they had never been published, and the Library of Congress thought they were one of their finest holdings. And just for a little setup's sake, the child, Leroy, he was 12 when he started keeping a journal, and he was a white kid born into a slaveholding family in Macon, Georgia. They had two plantations about 30 miles outside of town. They had a beautiful Grecian mansion in Macon, and there was something wrong with Leroy. You know, he had a broken leg. He was pretty much an invalid. He could get around, but he had a hard time. And that's really the extent of what you thought was wrong with him, but his health was deteriorating. So what's interesting is, is as you're reading this, they started talking about he was developing what they thought were bed sores, and they were giving him a lot of medicine, and he was always coughing, and he was vomiting, and he was losing weight. And his mom gave him a journal in 1860, because he was getting ready to leave with his dad to go north to Philadelphia to see a famous doctor, to see if the doctor could help with Leroy's condition. Well, it just seemed odd to me that something just didn't seem quite right about all that. So when we got to the end, I read the article. I saw it hadn't been published. I couldn't believe that. So I went online. I did a lot of checking, and, and you know, five years had gone by, and, and nothing had been published. So I started talking to Jan about it, and we went online, and she sort of walked me through some of the journals online. And I started reading them and realizing they were magnificent because this child, he spoke Latin, he read Shakespeare, he played chess. He was literally a prodigy and a bright, precocious, inquisitive, curious kid. And he spoke with people. He listened to adults. He talked to Confederate officers. He talked to politicians. He read newspapers. And then he would write. So it sort of hit me like he was a blogger, like a mid-19th century sort of blogging kind of kid. And his mom gave him the journal just to keep track of the trip north. And he came home, and he kept writing. And he wrote through secession, through the entire Civil War, until after the war, and he died at 17, just a few weeks after the end of the Civil War. And I thought right away, this is something that absolutely has to be published. And so I decided to work with Jan to get it done. The cover is cool art. We say don't judge a book by its cover as a metaphor, but in reality, it's a real art to be able to do covers well. You have just a few seconds to get somebody to grab the cover of a book, like The War Outside My Window, which I'm holding here now. You're seeing him through broken glass, and you're seeing a mansion there to the right. Is that the actual home? It is. So that's his actual home. Yeah, the home itself today, it's called the 1842 Inn. It's a bread and breakfast. And anybody who's listening can just type in 1842inn.com, and you'll see beautiful photos and read about the inn, and you can spend the night there. We actually kicked off the book tour there and spent the night in the house where where Leroy uh, was born and wrote and suffered and died. And then another item there that people might notice is the pronunciation of the name. And I asked you about that because it's written how I guess most of us would probably just say Leroy in, in the North anyway, L-E-R-O-Y, all as one word. Talk a little bit about that because that's an interesting note about his status and the position of his family in Macon. 
Sure. He wrote his name both ways, but he primarily wrote it with a capital R in the middle. So L-E capital R-O-Y. You know, we've sort of grown up to call it Leroy. And we started calling him that when we were down south, and a couple of people came up to us and said, you know what's interesting is it's actually Leroy. And I thought, well, we'd talked about that, and we thought it might be, we just weren't sure. And he explained that, well, what it is, is that if you were lower class or a slave with that name, you would be Leroy. But if you were top of the pyramid and you were upper crust and you were a rich southern young man, it was Leroy. And there was the distinction. And you could tell that just by hearing the mention of somebody's name, what they were. And I, I guess especially important when you would have slaves and they would be only known by a first name. And also the last name would be pronounced with a different emphasis, with a silent H. Yes. Gresham, I guess we'd say today. Mm-hmm. Looks like Gresham, but it's Gresham. And it's important, too, when people want to go look for the book and want to maybe go to the place to get a flavor for that. And you get somebody in Janet Kroon who hasn't written a book before, although she has a very strong historical resume. As managing editor, how do you go about collaborating with her on the project, especially when not only is she a first-time author, but you're saying, okay, we're going to hit the ground running on this. Let's get going. Sure. it's a great question. A couple things. First, There are so many people that go through this diary, scores and scores of people, and many are called Sarah or Mary or Anne, that I knew that a genealogist, someone really strong with genealogy, would have to be involved in the project. That's not me. And I know Jan has a strong genealogy background. I also knew that she has recently retired as a teacher, as a high school teacher, so she had time and a deep interest in Leroy and his background and his family. So she was very interested in working with the journals to do that. But she didn't have a strong military background. Well, but I do. And so I told her, look, there's a couple things we have to worry about. One is, if we're thinking about publishing this book, you can bet 10 other people probably are too. And there are different phases in recording it and researching it, and some people could take years and years and years to do that. We have to assume someone is. In fact, the journal could be sitting right now edited at a different publisher's company. I said, so what we're going to do is if you're interested, let's make a deal here, sign a contract, and I'm going to put out a press release, which I did. And the press release basically announced to the world that we're going to be publishing these journals shortly. Well, I didn't have a date yet because we hadn't put a word on paper, but I wanted to sort of flesh out and see who might be out there working on this because they'd probably contact us if they were very close or it would knock competition out of the way. No one was working on it. A couple people at the Library of Congress and elsewhere who would know said to their knowledge, no one else had been deeply involved in the project. So Jan and I moved forward and I did the military aspects of the journal, the footnotes, And uh, Jan did primarily the genealogical work. It's something that no one was working on. I think I'm probably going to come back to that again and again if I don't stop myself. Because the idea that this book sat there for so long, that his words sat for so long, even 30 years, if they were in somebody's attic before that or passed down through the family, you like to think as a history-minded person that someone would be waiting there just to pounce on anything new. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the case. 
It's one reason I wanted to speak to you because I, when I talk to my friends in the publishing industry, I say to them, I, I want to believe that books are magic. You know, I want to picture little elves are in there and everybody just <laughs> loves the books and history and that's how it gets put together. Of course, it's not the case. It's a business and it's something where there's human beings and there's things that they overlook. And this is what happens here. It just somehow gets out of the shuffle. And if you don't click that email, it's going to get lost. And, and still, we wouldn't be having this conversation. People wouldn't be able to pick up the war outside my window and enjoy it as I did. It's just how the world works. Well, it's an incredible story. And people are going to learn just how much more incredible it is when we talk about it here for the next few minutes, because there's a lot to talk about. But when I told a couple Civil War historians who are very, very prominent in this field, what I had they sort of, yeah, I'm not sure, I wouldn't get your hopes up, I doubt it, that sort of thing. And, and when we had the first translation of it and first round of footnotes, I sent it off to a couple of them and whose names would be well known, but I don't have the permission to use their name publicly for this, so I won't. But both of them came back with a sort of a slap your forehead, are you kidding me? Because they were flipping through it, reading it, and a couple of them ended up giving blurbs on, on the back cover. And they said that they were just, shocked. They couldn't believe something this deep, this rich, this literate, this important had been sitting there for so long, and they had never heard of it, and they researched in the Library of Congress. It's a remarkable story. I don't know how it escaped attention. Maybe it was fate and it was meant to be with us. I don't know. Yeah, it's certainly great that it did get published and it did find you because he's waiting there and he does have irony, he has humor, he has all the things you'd want in a diarist. I know, for instance, my wife's grandfather left a diary behind from his time in the Great War. Oftentimes, his only entry on a day will be bad grub. Right. Okay, that's not much. Or the gentleman who's called, although he wasn't officially Lincoln's bodyguard, he left a diary and you're just dying to get a hold of it, right? And you think it would be all these great personal things and quips of Honest Abe. There's just nothing there, as the gentleman who, who has those unpublished <laughs> diaries says. It just doesn't sweep you away. Some people just aren't like that. They make lists, maybe, but they're not painting a picture. And especially here in Leroy's case, he has no idea he's writing for Americans 150 years later or writing for anybody, but just his mother gives him that book, blank pages there in the diary, in the journal, and he starts to work. It just tells you, you give somebody a book, you say, okay, it can change their life. And I could see the war outside my window doing that for a young person, maybe who's in a similar state of illness, but giving him a blank book here. She manages to record this pivotal event in life and mm -hmm. it gives us something that's not not just the same old view. I wanted to make a confession to everybody who may be a Civil War buff and it may be shocking to say or heresy to say, but man, when I'm watching a documentary and I get endless descriptions followed by Mary Chestnut, I can kind of parrot it by the end. It's great to have her view, but as a mm -hmm. former TV producer, I say, I want to have something fresh. And the fact that nobody ever looked through these diaries or knew that they were there to give us a different voice, criminal. Nobody thought of it. Nobody knew they were there, there, wherever they are until 30 years ago. Sure. And they remained for 150 years here you go, right? Yeah, yeah. You're hitting on a lot of really interesting points, Dean. Let me expand on a couple of those I think your audience will find interesting. I'll tell you some of the unique aspects of this book. And when I tell people this, some people just raise their eyebrows and shake their heads and that nah, that can't be true, but it is. <laughs> First, Leroy's book, his journal is the only Civil War diary in existence by a male teenage noncombatant. 
it covers 1860 to 1865. There's nothing else like it in the literature at all, period, hands down, nothing. Number two, he doesn't do what you were talking about, which is what most diarists did if they were soldiers or even civilians. They might say, you know, it's cloudy outside, it rained today, and that's the extent. And then three or four or five days goes by, and then there's a couple sentences, and another three days goes by. Leroy wrote, I'm going to default to Leroy half the time because I'm from Iowa and I always grew up with Leroy's too. <laughs> That's fine. Leroy wrote nearly every day for five years. And he wrote about a lot of things every day. And there's so much in the diary that we didn't put in it. We had to take out for length, for other issues, because it didn't really translate into exactly what you'd want to read. For example, he was an avid chess player, avid chess player. He was enthralled with opening moves and strategies, and he kept an entire track of all of his games and his moves and what worked and what didn't work, and he studied that sort of thing. He was that kind of a kid. And the other thing that's amazing about this book is, as Jan and I, and Jan and I talked probably every other day for a year, and we lived with Leroy constantly for a year. So I actually feel like you, I know this kid sitting there. And as we're reading through this journal, it becomes obvious he's very sick early on, and there's something else wrong other than his leg, which we didn't know how it had broken, because nobody seemed to know. But it didn't heal right, but there seemed to be something else going on. And so he's talking about his back, and he's got abscesses on his back, and they're cutting his back open, and they're stuffing it with medicated peas, which is what they would do back then, and, and they'd burn it. He was on morphine, and they gave him probably 15 or so different kinds of drugs and remedies to try to fix him and help him, and he would talk about all of these and what was wrong with him and what the doctors told him and how he was suffering and, and, and what was going on. And I pulled out a lot of this with Jan. We pulled out about 19 pages worth of this, and we gave it to a doctor friend of ours who was an experienced general surgeon who also has a deep interest in Civil War and, and 19th century medicine. And we said, Dennis, can you look at this and tell us what's wrong with this kid? There's something wrong with him. And again, he dies right after the end of the war. What killed him? Couldn't have been his leg. And so uh, Dennis looked at this for about two weeks and called me one day, and he said, Ted, have a seat. I got your answer. I said, sure. And I sat down. I said, all right, give me it. And he said he died of tuberculosis. And I said, you're kidding. It was tuberculosis. He says, yes. He said he had tuberculosis, and it went through his lungs, into his tissue, and out his back. Ugh. And so it was eating away his spine. And, in fact, if you Google spinal tuberculosis, you'll see it actually still exists in places like Pakistan and parts of India and different places where they can't get medication. But it went out his spine, it's called Potts disease, and it ate away at him, and that's what killed him, and it's a horrendous death. I mean, it's a painful, horrible, crippling death. And the other unique aspect of all of this is that there's no other account by a tuberculosis patient in the history of the world that records his symptoms, his sickness, and everything beginning to end for five years. There isn't another one in existence. So doctors and medical people are just enthralled by what Leroy left them. 
So you get not only the gift of one incredible description of the war, which is the thing that we're going to focus on because this book is called The War Outside My Window, but you get to offer us up this whole medical history. And I can't imagine wanting to sit there and write when I'm so sick, but he does it. And from that comes the book, I Am Perhaps Dying, the medical backstory of spinal tuberculosis hidden in the Civil War diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham. So he gives us two gifts to the historical record. As a reader, you feel a little bit guilty. You say he suffered so much, and out of that, we get so much in the historical record. But in reading the book here, you all treat it with such respect. All of you writing it together, writing your introductions, to the footnoting it, all of that. Open the book as if you're walking into this room of somebody who's very, very sick into mm-hmm. their ho- hospital room. Have that mm-hmm. respect for him. Realize that he's not just a curiosity. This isn't a novel. This is, in a way, his five-year last will and testament that he's leaving behind. So you treat him with the respect that he deserves that he earned, really, by giving us so much and fleshing out things that even in something as well-studied as the history of tuberculosis and the Civil War is unique to us and fleshes out our picture. Boy, that uh, five-year will and testament, that, that's an incredible statement. That's really an interesting way to put it. Yeah, uh, Dennis Rosbach, the doctor who helped us he solved this riddle, and without him, the book would be much less impactful, I think. I had him write a side book called I Am Perhaps Dying. It's much shorter. It's completely about the TB and, and Leroy and, and what he suffered from, and it's a separate standalone book. What's interesting about TB, and I didn't know this at the time, is that about 70 to 75% of all the people back then had it. I had no idea. And they could fight it off because their immune systems would fight it off and sort of crystallize it in their lungs, and they would live, and they'd go on and lead, lead a normal life. But Leroy, who probably had it before he broke his leg, he broke his leg when he was eight, by the way. We found out from outside letters and different things that a chimney had fallen on him and broken his leg when he was playing on a chimney with some other kids. And he probably already had TB. And breaking his leg meant he couldn't be as active. His immune system would be working on fighting and, and to fix this leg, and it probably then became active TB because we know he had it as early as 1857 from a private letter from the dad to the mom. It's very vague, but it talks about enough things to where when you know the whole story, you go back to that letter and you say, wow, they knew then. And we didn't realize that until we pretty much got to the end of the book and sorted through it. But you know, I wanted to say something else, and I always tell my authors, don't talk for longer than 30 seconds without letting the host talk. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, you know, my, my authors are going to listen to this and they're going to call and text me and say, now, wait a minute. But, you know, you're right. He wasn't a circus act. He was a young man and, and his life was cut horribly short. And the thing to remember is, is that as he's writing, I tell readers, uh, in fact, I'm going to do a blog post on this because I have had, I've never had a book like this where I have so many people who are Civil War specialists and non-specialists, I'll bet you a quarter of the people reading this have never read a Civil War book in their life, which is really amazing to me. And they're telling me how they're reading the book. Well, I've never had anyone in 30 years of publishing tell me how they're reading a book. And what they're doing is, and I'm using what they're telling me to suggest to others, is they're reading it in snippets. They're reading all the front matter. You can't skip the front matter. It's very important to setting up the story. And they're reading maybe a month at a time. And then they're sitting back and they're thinking about it and they're talking to their spouse or their wife or husband or friend. 
even if they don't know about the Civil War, and they say, there's this kid and he's doing this, and what do you think about this? And the people that don't have expertise in the area are coming back with very interesting questions. And so they're talking about it like they're friends of Leroy's, like they're ghosts in the house. They're just living with the Gresham family. So when Leroy talks about the slaves coming up from the plantation bringing food and how they're cooking it and what he's doing and what his hobbies are and how his mom is dressed and what she's doing and what the father's worried about and the stress of the war that's starting, you're actually living with a family that no longer exists and you get to go back into their world and you can't find an account like this anywhere in the literature that's this long, this in-depth, from inside a Southern family, from the height of their time. I mean, right at the top peak of their existence, all the way down to the end where they lose everything. Well, I've interviewed a few of your authors, and I have to say, the 30-second rule, a little bit of a break, because I just love sitting and listening. I become not somebody who's trying to host and ask questions, but I just become a person who loves history, as we said with the with the documentaries there, where I just want to listen, just like I just wanted to read. And I wanted to learn more because there are these mysteries, and part of that is the limitations of the time. They didn't know much to be able to define it. Even you said this famous doctor, there's only so much even the best doctor would be able to do for you. Mm -hmm. What strikes me is that you had to go and search for that chimney accident to find out what happened to him. Mm -hmm. We're very used to now people dwelling on the bad things that happened to them. And it seems impossible to me as I'm reading it that he never gives into that depression and despair. He never talks about the other boys that are with him. He never says, oh, woe is me and blames other people. He has a little bit of a, of a tongue in cheek. He certainly you know, talks about this prison that he's in stuck mm -hmm. in the bed. But I can't imagine today if somebody went through this, you talked about a, a blogger, he's sort of like a, a blogger from the Civil War, that would be a basic thing that we would say is how I got in this situation, even if they were in, telling an inspiring story about overcoming it. And it's interesting that he never chooses to dwell on that accident. And a little bit frustrating for us, fortunately, you were able to go do a whole nother level of Matlock research there and, and be a detective. And you know, you're not just a publisher, you have other hats you had to wear to find out what happened to him because he never tells us no and, and, and again i mean you're hitting on, on just terrific points Leroy, it's really interesting it's not about him and you find as you as you read through this you start you like him right away you look at his picture and you like him right away and you find out that he was a kind young man he cared about everybody and he talked about everybody there were eight slaves in the house i can't remember they call them slave servants or servants and I think they distinguished, and also he gave the names of all the plantation slaves that would come up. And they'd ride wagons 25 or 30 miles all alone, which was interesting to see how that whole system operated. And they'd bring up meat, and they'd bring up vegetables and fruits and things to the family and to the house. And he talked about the different slaves in the house and what they were doing and who they were and how one of them took his wagon and helped him fix it and, and was trying to make it better for him. And and another one was working on his chess table for him and, and the different sorts of things. And he was writing privately. So it doesn't appear that anybody read his journal. I think he kept it very private. He didn't hide it, but I think he kept it private. And it's interesting because somebody asked me a question the other day, straying a little bit off topic. They said, well, what would, what would Leroy think today if he saw this? I mean, if he, if he came back today and, and he saw what you've done, and you've published his book, and you've annotated, and I, what would he think? And that really took me aback, because I had to really 
give that some thought. And I think I have a fairly good answer to that. And I think he would be shocked at first, maybe a little angry. You violated my privacy. But Leroy was so smart. He was so farsighted. He was so, he could look around corners, put it that way. And if he realized that he had given his family life again, that he had given his mother life. His mother exists almost nowhere other than in this journal. And he gave her life immortally. He brought her to life for us. And if he could realize that that's what his journals did, because he had no idea that 150 years later we'd have this kind of knowledge uh, and need this kind of historical knowledge. And if he also realized the medical aspects of what he was writing, how that would help all of us understand him and his family and his world better, I think Leroy would be happy, and he'd understand that. You're enjoying my chat with Theodore P. Savas, partner and managing editor at Savas Beatty, LLC, publishers of The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860-1865. Visit SavasBeatty.com for more fine titles like this one. That's S-A-V-A-S. B-E-A-T-I-E. And you can find Janet Kroon's reflections at thewaroutsidemywindow.blogspot.com or at facebook.com slash Leroy Wiley Gresham. It's certainly the kind of book where you're going to want to be able to go and get some additional material. You're not going to say goodbye to Leroy after you close that last page. Award-winning Civil War historian Eric J. Wittenberg writes, quote, As the war outside my window aptly demonstrates, Leroy Wiley Gresham was a fascinating young man, possessed of wit, insight, and eloquence, all while suffering from the ravages of a terminal disease. His diary, published here for the first time, is simultaneously fascinating, insightful, compelling, and tragic. Anyone interested in the home front in the South during the Civil War, slavery, family, and the travails of doomed youth, will find this book a real treasure. It deserves a wide audience well beyond the Civil War community and a place on your bookshelf. Ted, it certainly is getting that wider audience people are reading it who maybe have never picked up a Civil War book before and yet are just drawn in by this young man's ability to tell a story and use the English language so well. It sounds like he really did have that crossover appeal. Well, yeah. The first time I ever really realized that this might have a crossover appeal, because I really didn't realize that at first. My girlfriend, Zoe, she's lived with Leroy the whole time, too, and she's a nurse. And as I'm describing Leroy, and I'm describing his family, and I'm describing what we're doing, and she's reading some of the early entries, she said to me one day, you know, I'd like to read this book. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. She goes, and she reads all the time, but she reads historical fiction, and she reads some different kinds of things. She's never read a Civil War book in her life. She said, I would like to read this because I think there's so much there that a non-specialist kind of person would enjoy. And then she'd go out and talk to some of her friends about it, and she'd come back and she'd said, I'm right. And I says, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm talking to so-and-so, and I'm talking to so-and-so, and telling them what you're working on, and they said, I'd like to read that. <laughs> and so, lo and behold, she's right, because we've, we've been finding a lot of people ordering the book, a lot of people reviewing the book, who have no background in the Civil War at all, and they're absolutely fascinated by what they're reading because it's such a different sort of book. 
And you got to be the cool history guy. Isn't it lovely <laughs> when you get to talk to somebody who doesn't often read a history book and they say, hey, I want to read that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that with my wife. Who are you interviewing this week? She'll ask me and I'll tell her. And then if I get a little inkling of interest and she says, "That's that sounds really interesting, I'll say, once you get the hook <laughs> and you start telling a little bit more, you say, but he also did this. It was really cool. And especially with, with me, it's an additional challenge because she's Canadian. So when I can talk about a book like <laughs> The War Outside My Window and get her interest, I say, gold in the beginning. It's not just a metaphor. You you hit a home run with him. It's something very different. And, and you, had, you had said something interesting earlier on about he didn't let his illness get him down, and he kept writing. Why don't you just say a couple things on that, because it's pretty important. Again, we didn't realize this until much later, once you've read the journal three or four times and you're editing it and adding footnotes and things. Journaling kept him alive. And I don't know that he knew that, of course, but it gave him something to do and a focus away from his pain and suffering. And as the war is going well for the South early on, he's excited. You can see it and read it in his journal. And as the war starts turning against the South and against what they're fighting for, you can see and read sort of between the lines that he's a little less happy about things. And he'll, he'll tell you, but you can read it that it's, He's a little weaker. His problems are getting worse. He's getting sicker. And he's getting depressed. In fact, I think he used that word toward the end of the war, where it's depressing him. And you could see that as the South is dying, so is he. And so what he's doing for four years is he's chronicling his own death together with the fall of the South. And, of course, they mimic one another, which is you know, very interesting. But it helped keep him alive. You know, when somebody has a lot of problems in their life, one of the things they say is a journal, right? Hmm. Open up a book and just start writing about whatever you want to write about, and, and you'll see that it helps you. Well, I think that happened to Leroy, and I think it helped him. You speak about him being invested in the Southern cause, the cause of the Confederacy, in the same way that you're fortunate that the war outside my window is attracting people who maybe never picked up a Civil War book before. There are some readers who aren't going to want to pick up this book. They aren't going to want to read about somebody who is a pampered young man who depends on the slave system. That's what he's born into. They may be repelled by the idea of romanticizing the Confederacy's lost cause. As publishers, how does Savas Beatty approach The War Outside My Window and other titles when history becomes entwined with current politics? Well, there's the hot-button question for you. We're actually experiencing that, and we have been for quite a while, and not, not quite with the blowback we were expecting, but we've experienced it in many ways. Let me give you just a few examples. Jan, the editor of the book, Jan Kroon, she was working on it about six months in, and she had somebody say, how in the world could you make money off the backs of slaves? Hmm. And that took her back. She said, well, this is a history project. I'm not making money off the back of anyone. And we're finding people that are saying, like you said, that, uh, well, this is this white kid, and, and he was suffering. But what about all the slaves? Well, I mean, they're right. The slaves suffered terribly, and they suffered in many ways much, much worse than he did. It's interesting that these people lived in a, what we would consider, a, obviously, a mansion. And he's talking about how the house in the middle of winter is something like 20 degrees in the hallway inside this house. And you're thinking, they're living in a 20-degree house. And think of what the slaves are going through where they live and how cold it was where they were. And so you have to put all of it in context. Leroy was born into this life. He didn't choose it. He didn't get old enough to really 
turn around and look back and, and reflect on it because he died a young man. And he was very sick by the time he was 12, of course, and didn't have a chance to really say whether it was good or bad or indifferent. He does write about slavery, but he does say toward the end, he said he, I can't remember exactly, he got into an argument with someone or somebody was arguing that slavery was divinely inspired. And he wrote, I really doubt that. And that kind of gives you an impression that he didn't think, obviously, it was divinely inspired like some of the South did. And he also, you can tell, was kind and he liked and was liked by people that worked with him in the house. I think it, it would be hard to hard to not develop a certain sort of affinity for somebody that you grew up with and live with. But something interesting happened at the end of the war. His mother left a private letter and she wrote this letter to her sister. This is about uh, maybe three or four weeks after they buried Leroy. And his mother was heartbroken, as you can imagine. She had already lost two infants and Leroy was her favorite child, hands down favorite. And now she'd lost him and she'd lost him suffering for five years. She would have heard him coughing every day for five years because you can't hide it in a house like that. So it would have been horrible if, you, if you're the parent knowing what's happening to your child. But she writes to her sister and she talks about his last hours. I'm not going to give it all away because the letter's in the, at the end of the book. And she writes in deep detail about conversations she had with him when he realizes he's going to die, what he says, what she says back, and it's, you can't help but tear up reading it. But one of the things she says that's worth telling here is that she was absolutely bitter and unforgiving that the slaves who professed to love Leroy while he was alive refused to come up and pay respects to his body when he was dead. And when we first read that, of course, we didn't know he had tuberculosis. But now once you realize he had what they called back then consumption, they didn't know that it was bacterially driven. They didn't understand contagion, but they also were smart enough to realize, people in general were smart enough to realize that he died of something horrible. And if you come close, you might get it somehow. So they were afraid to walk up to his body and deal with it. And they didn't for their own self reasons. And the mother didn't appreciate or understand that in her grief. And she writes about it at length in the letter. It's, it's quite heartbreaking to read. It's such a complicated relationship. And I think it's easy for us to look back and just take two seconds and say quickly, okay, here's a, here's a young man. He's born into the slave system. He uses the popular democratic caricature of Abraham Lincoln as an ape. He also mocks that second inaugural address, the one featuring the words with malice toward none. He calls it a hypocritical, praise God, bare bones piece of pure fanaticism. Yep. And you, you read that now and you say, well, gosh, Lincoln's on every penny and every $5 bill I've ever looked at. And, <laughs> and we have to remind ourselves that in that moment, he does have that very narrow window. You see it here on the cover of the war outside my window, that, that broken glass, that little bit of the, of the window he can see out, that's his view of the world. So to expect him to have seen more from the confinement to a horizontal prison, as he calls it, is mm -hmm. unfair to him. And we should take what he is able to give us. And I always say it's very easy for us to condescend to history and look down on people. And then you think, well, in 150 years, what will they look down on us about? We hope that they will at least give us a chance in history to plead our case. And he 
does this here in a way, although he's not intending to. He writes so many good things, and he's a flawed human being like any people were, much less in 1850 mm-hmm. in Georgia, in a place that's fighting against the Union and, and owns people in bondage. So I think it gives us a perspective where people should be open to hearing what he has to tell us. Keeping that in mind, of course, you don't want to set that apart and dismiss that he's benefiting from this system. But you can read the story he has, read his relationship with Bill, for instance, the man euphemistically called his valet, mm-hmm. and see his thoughts and see the the words, the terms that, that he uses, and, and get that picture instead of just skipping right over it. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll probably make some people angry by saying this, but I'll say it anyway because it's, you know, I'm, don't ever shy away from saying things. I think people who don't read or are unwilling to read and understand history in context are just ignorant. Because if you can't look at history and understand it as much as possible from the times in which the history unfolded, well, then history doesn't have any real value. You have to understand it at its time to understand why it was happening the way it did. Because otherwise, if you use your values today, and you said something like this, if you try to go back and use your values today about something that happened 150 years ago, well, we're going to look foolish in a lot of the things we're doing 150 years from now. I mean, you, you just can't evaluate history that way. It's, it's, it's unfair to the people who lived it. And you you use the word ignorance. And as you said that about, I'm just going to say it anyway, I thought, well, here we are, two Greek Americans. This is a great Greek tradition of just speaking your mind and the the Socratic (laughs) method and just going out there and saying what you think. We don't really have the inner voice. At most, we'll say, I shouldn't say, but... But. And then your, your grandfather or your, your uncle Theo or Taki will just tell you. And I'm thinking as you're saying that, you're ignorant by choice then. Yeah. Leroy had no choice in that bed. He couldn't go visit the freedmen. He couldn't go if he chose to and, and read a book or hear Frederick Douglass speak. His ignorance was enforced upon him by that illness, by the fact that he couldn't leave that sickbed. But for us... We can go and learn something, even from a terrible thing. I mean, this is why we have a First Amendment. This is why we don't ban or burn books, hopefully, because you want to be able to learn to make a a real big swing then, like Aerosmith. They say, live and learn from fools and from sages. Mm -hmm. So whatever you think of him, why enforce that ignorance on yourself? Let's find out what his view was, and then maybe we can come, as Martin Luther King said, and learn to have some understanding terms. He gives a, a sermon where he talks about the three Greek words for love. And he says, when we talk about love your enemy in the Bible, we don't mean romantic love. That would be absurd to romantically love someone who's beating you. But you learn to have that love for all of humanity where you can look at somebody, even the son of a slaveholder, depending on this horrible system of chattel slavery, and you can understand, you can see where they got to there. And maybe you can hope for him, although we'll never know, that his life would have been better once the Confederacy ends and he goes on. We can hope that he was fighting to be the better person, to be the person whose stories we laugh at and enjoy in the book and are moved by, and not be defined about where he came from. Well, many people ask me also, what, what would have happened to him had he lived? What, what do you think he would have become, just knowing his journal so well? And of course, we don't know the answer to that. We never will, since he didn't live it. But it strikes me that he would have been somebody we would have heard from anyway. Politician, maybe a governor, maybe a senator, famous writer. He would have been somebody that we would have, we would have heard from. So I think it's a little uh, ironic that he writes something so magnificent, it's hidden away for so long and found accidentally, 
and we hear from him anyway. He was insisting somehow what was put in him was going to get into the historical record. He was going to be a young man of great expectations. He he had them and would have been something. So it's great that he does leave something behind, even though mm-hmm. it might not have been what he would have wanted to. Oh, you know, Dean, you said something interesting about the cover. This was the hardest cover to design. And I take a direct hand in, in designing all our jackets because I really enjoy that process. And our designer went through, I bet, I don't know, 20 different iterations of this thing. We had different titles. We couldn't agree on the main title. We couldn't agree on the subtitle. We couldn't agree on the tagline. It was crazy, and, and we were running up against deadlines, and, and we were on the phones on Sundays and trying to figure it out. And the odd thing is is that a camel is a quarter horse put together by a committee, right? <laughs> You've heard that before. Yeah. And usually, I mean, a committee helped in the end put this title and cover together. And I hated doing that because I know that I didn't want a camel. I wanted a quarter horse. But I have to say that I'm absolutely confident that we picked the right title and have the right jacket because I have so many different people on the tour in Georgia, on email and Facebook and on the phone, who have said that. I love the jacket. I can't stop looking at it. And that alone makes me smile because I think of how how many different iterations it could have been. Another thing that you mentioned in the book is comparisons to Anne Frank's diary, which is probably another thing that, that may surprise people, if not shock them. You admit, honestly, that it's not a perfect comparison, but you see some parallels. Here are two young people hoping for their lives, yet fearful for their lives, who are trapped. One is trapped by his own body. The other is trapped by the Nazi occupation. If you focus on that, you can get an idea of what you're getting out of this book. Mm -hmm. You're getting a young person who is stuck also by the slavery system. It's not as if he can walk out and can change it. That He doesn't get right. that opportunity ever to come outside that window. His health starts failing by June 9th, 1865. The war's over. He makes his final entry, and it's tantalizingly, frustratingly incomplete, but that's also fitting because his life is left incomplete. His life is interrupted. There are three words. Only the first two are legible. I am. He, and he actually he died nine days after that. But what's interesting is you have to back up just slightly to really understand, because Jan called me one day and she said, the handwriting in the journal is different. So what do you mean? And she said, well, and this was about maybe two weeks of entries. And she said, she said well, the handwriting has changed, and I don't, I'm not sure whose it is. So we looked it up and looked at some different letters and things, and we absolutely compared it. It's the mom's handwriting. Hmm. So the mother was writing because he was so weak now. He was 63 pounds at 16. So at 17, he was probably 50 pounds. He was like a cancer victim at the end. I mean, he was just very sick. And he was dictating his mother was writing. And so he's tired. and He's getting weaker and weaker. And at the end, we're 100% confident because we looked up the word, looked it up in Adobe, blew it up and studied it very carefully and backshaded it and did different things. The word is perhaps, huh. and that's Dennis's book, I Am Perhaps Dying. Wow. And so the word is definitely perhaps. And so he said, I am perhaps, and I called Jan up uh, one evening, I remember this very clearly, and I said, I know, I know what he's saying. And she says, what, what do you mean? And he, I said, listen, his mom is taking dictation, and he is realizing he's dying. And he said to his mother, I am perhaps dying and then you could hear him going on, now as I lay here, the end is coming. And his mother wrote the word perhaps, but she's already heard dying. And so she, the word gets light at the end and it skips. And the mother couldn't write anymore. 
and she could never write again. She just couldn't. So she, you can see her putting it down and crying or leaving or hugging him or something. But that's what the word was. It was perhaps. And I'm 100% confident he was talking about dying. Wow. This is exactly what I meant about saying, go to the blog posts, go to the Facebook page, go to sabbathpeedy.com, the war outside my window, blogspot.com, because he still had some words to say to me. And it's more detective work. It's just an amazing piece of interactive history where you and Janet and the doctor, you're all these people you're talking with, you're involved in finding out his story and digging into it and bringing him back to life for us. And I appreciate that. I want to tell you one little really remarkable bit of detective work that got lucky. We were visiting his house, and the people there who run the, the 1842 Inn are magnificent people. They are so friendly and so helpful and so wonderful. And Keith, who is the caretaker, he's been there for 30 years, we were talking one day, and he points around the second floor, and he points to a balcony at the front of the house, and he said, well, Leroy was watching the Battle of Macon from right out there. And I said, uh, no, I, no, he wasn't. He was on the roof. He says, on the roof? And I said, oh, yeah, he, he was on the roof. He said, are you sure? And I said, oh, yeah, we, we've got a lot of evidence. He was up on the roof. And so I said, how would he have gotten up there? And so he points to me, he come on, and he takes me into a bedroom, and he closes the door, and he goes to a, the back of the room, and he pushes on the wall, and out pops the panel, and there's a hidden little staircase behind the wall. <laughs> so we walked up this little staircase up through the attic onto the roof, and he took me up to where Leroy would have watched the fighting and he writes about it in his journal. And, of course, he wouldn't have walked up there. Somebody would have had to have carried him up there. And maybe they held him while he watched. We don't know. But he watched the fighting from up there, and we got to go up the staircase that he would have gone up in that way and, and watched the fighting, which was just the creme de la creme for me. It was just really a wonderful opportunity. So much in this story that he still has to teach us. I hope that people will want to pick up the war outside my window and get on this ride with you. Get carried away by him and be able to enjoy his story and enjoy this new view or take in this new view, whatever the perfect word is for it. He has, he has so much. It's at once enjoyable, educational, and sad, tragic, and enlightening. So there's so much that it has to offer us, really a unique piece of nonfiction we have time for one last question, and I want to take this opportunity, since you're in the book business, to let you make your pitch to the wider audience that's already discovering The War Outside My Window and invite people to join that. You say a quarter of the people already had never read another Civil War book, so make your pitch to the other people who haven't read a Civil War book or to the people who've read 20 books. Sure. Why should anybody pick up this book, The War Outside My Window, and meet young Le Roy Gresham? Well, I'll put a caveat out in the front, so I'll answer it a little bit differently. This is not beach literature. This is not a Clive Cussler novel. This is not a Tom Clancy novel. This is not something you sit and read 200 pages at a time and can't put down. It's not that kind of a read. It's a, an ability to go into the life of a family in the middle 19th century and slowly unpeel their lives and watch what's happening to them to their life, to their slaves, to themselves, and live with them and cry with them and die with them. And it's so unique to look at it that way that there's something in it for everyone. If you enjoy women's history, there's all kinds of material inside here that you'll get nowhere else. If you enjoy the history of African-Americans and slavery, 
Well, you'll understand much better how plantations interacted with the homes and how the slaves interacted and what they did and how they did it. If you like medical history, a lot of us have kids and we think about our kids are sick and how we wish we could be sick in their place. And you think about the family and what they went through having this young man dying in front of their eyes, but he's not dying for a week or two. He's dying for five years. And so there's something in there for everybody. If you enjoy the Civil War, not only do you get to see how civilians in the Deep South got their news, but it's a chronology of the entire war. It's not just Georgia. It's not just Virginia. He reads newspapers. He talks to people. He writes about the entire war. And you get to understand how they process news. And guess what they had back then, Dean? Fake news. <laughs> because he realizes what he's reading in one paper is not right. Battle of Gettysburg, the editor, who's a friend of his of the Macon paper, tells Leroy it was just a skirmish. It's not important. And, of course, they get used to that kind of thing, and then they hear the truth later. And so they, they learn to distrust the news. There's so many things to read, agricultural history, environmental land history, architecture. There's so much in here. So I really encourage people to get the book, read the book, consider the footnotes to be dinner talk, because what's in the footnotes almost exclusively would be things that they would have known and talked about just Leroy didn't write it down. So that's really part of the story. And so when you get done with this book and you close this book, I guarantee you, you will not forget this book. And you can go to the 1842 Inn and experience that walk, the actual place, walk the hallways, see where he lived this story. That's a whole nother level of a book. Oh, Dean, we have people from Canada down to Florida, down to New Mexico telling us they're going to make a special trip next year to stay at the 1842 Inn now that they read the book. <laughs> Hey, I'm ready to. I mean, amazing. <laughs> I didn't know that it still existed. There's so many questions you'll have. I hope we answered some of them here. You mentioned that it's not a, a beach read, and you know those can be great. We can all enjoy a fun novel. We like that. Since I mentioned food before as a metaphor, who doesn't love a Big Mac? Who doesn't have a, a guilty pleasure, an extra piece of cake at night? But this is a book where it's a meal. It's very satisfying. You're going to remember having read this book the way you do a really fantastic meal when you're in Paris or you're at that special restaurant somewhere mm -hmm. on the Gold Coast in, in Australia. I had a really great meal. I'll never forget it because it was so satisfying. And that's what the war outside my window is. It's satisfying. And I hope that you are satisfied here with our chat. Theodore P. Savis, managing editor of Savis Beatty. Thank you for clicking that link. This might be a once-in-a-lifetime book. It's amazing what's out there that still hasn't been revealed like this young voice of the Old South in The War Outside My Window. I wish you the best of luck with this book and the many other fine titles that you've given me over the years. And I'm so happy to be able to speak to you and get this publisher's perspective. Dean, thanks for having me on the radio. And I deeply appreciate it. Love your show and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. You too. Keep clicking. All right, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> Again, the book is The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860-1865. You can also pick up that companion book, focusing on the illness that ultimately claimed this young man's life. That title is I Am Perhaps Dying, The Medical Backstory of Spinal Tuberculosis Hidden in the Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham. 
As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copies at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Ted Savis for joining us. It was really great to talk to him after enjoying so many of the books he sent our way. Leroy may not have made it out of his teens, but his words go marching on. Visit SavisBeatty.com for more of their titles. That's S-A-V-A-S-B-E-A-T-I-E. Find Janet Kroon's reflections at thewaroutsidemywindow.blogspot.com or facebook.com slash Leroy Wiley Gresham. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, our Facebook page, or on Instagram. If you enjoyed this conversation, check out my chats with other fine Savas Beatty authors. Gene Barr brought us a Civil War captain and his lady, Love, Courtship, and Combat from Fort Donelson through the Vicksburg Campaign. Stephen Davis discussed A Long and Bloody Task. He also had its companion paperback, All the Fighting They Want. The Atlanta Campaign from Peachtree Creek to the City's Surrender, July 18 to September 2nd, 1864. And if you're thinking of maybe visiting George's 1842 Inn to get a view of the home Leroy Gresham lived in, you really won't want to miss that chat with Stephen Davis, who talks so much about Georgia and the history all around the Atlanta area. You can also enjoy my chat with Noah Andre Trudeau, author of Lincoln's Greatest Journey, 16 Days That Changed the Presidency, March 24th to April 8th, 1865. All of those interviews are available in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore